Good afternoon. I'll explain. I'll explain why I look like this. I know I have a distracting clothing choice on right now, but um, it was dark when I was getting dressed, and so I had no idea that I was wearing two different socks, one long and one short. So forgive me. I hope it doesn't distract you today. We're also having an ugly sweater-themed volunteer appreciation event after this service. And so we love our volunteers. We're so grateful uh, for all of you. And there's amazing opportunities to serve here at Cornerstone. And we hope everyone gets plugged in. Uh, I was told it was an ugly sweater contest. That's why I went all out for this. But apparently it's just a theme. But I still win. I still think I win. As long as I still win, it's okay. We're in our Advent series. We've talked about um, hope and peace. And today we're going to talk about joy. Next week we'll talk about love. Those are our gospel themes that we're focusing on. But it's worth noting that joy, even above the other ones, is an attitude that is often associated with spontaneous reactions, right? It overflows into something on the exterior. Hope, peace, joy, and love are all given to us by God and should be ongoing attitudes. But hope, peace, and love have this inner quality that we cultivate, whereas in joy bursts onto the outside. It just leaves us and continues to celebrate at, at peak levels where we just can't contain it anymore. We have an example in the Bible of this happening in a really peculiar kind of way. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's a story where King David wants to bring the Ark, the, the Ark of the Covenant, from a faraway city to Jerusalem so that God's presence could be closer to him. And the first time he tried to do this, it didn't, it didn't go right. And, and he, you know, someone touched the Ark and died. And, but after a few months, when he realized how he should be doing this by offering a sacrifice to the Lord and doing it, doing it humbly, he was so filled with joy that God was giving them a chance at this that when he brought the ark to Jerusalem, it says that he danced in his loincloth. You're like, what in the world? And you're, I mean, it's almost like he had his royal robes on. I was like, I can't, I can't celebrate in these robes. I can't, I can't move around enough. And so we don't know exactly what it looked like, but it's like he was in his pajamas. But in 2 Samuel 6, 14, it says, David was girded with a linen ephod which is a ceremonial loincloth. And if, if you think we misinterpreted that and maybe it was something else, well, David's wife, McCall, didn't misinterpret it. She was embarrassed and upset and was yelling at him saying like, oh, how honorable is the king dancing around half naked today? And she was embarrassed at him. Now, my wife gets embarrassed if we twin by accident. If, God forbid, we walk out the door and we're wearing the same color, you know, shirt and, and pants by accident, no matter how late we are, she will run upstairs and change. And, um, and she's wondering why I didn't want to wear the same kind of themed Halloween outfit with hers, because she's, she's wrecked me. Every time we're twinning, she's embarrassed and she has to go change. I'm not changing because I don't care. My kids get embarrassed when I tell dad jokes, and so I thoroughly research dad jokes to embarrass them in front of their friends. And the team here, our staff team here at Cornerstone gets embarrassed when I wear my really cheap, freely given, quiet, cool air conditioner um, sandals, my little slip-ons that are branded by the quiet, cool whole house fan. I'm not sponsored by them. I don't even have one, but I got the sandals for free and they think it's disgusting. But at least I'm not showing up to work in my pajamas. At least I'm not doing what King David did here. But David's response after his wife really rebuked him for being out of character for a king, it wasn't dignified what he did. Here's what David said. I will celebrate before the Lord. 
I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He's like, it's not about me looking good. It's not about what other people are thinking about me. I don't think David was trying to be inappropriate in what he was wearing. He's just saying, I wanted to worship the Lord passionately, and it's not about me, it's about him. So is our goal to be so joyful in the Lord that we worship in our underwear? No, <laughs> no, that is not the goal. But our joy can overflow and express itself practically in our worship, our words, and our wants, even our desires. And we'll talk more about that as we go through and look at some different passages. And so different reasons for why we have joy. But first, you have to define what, what joy seems to be uh, apart from the Lord. And the best definition you can have is that it's momentary happiness. And it can be called joy, but it's, it's momentary and it fades any parent that's ever had kids open presents on a birthday or a Christmas know that joy, as, as great as it can be, will fade. I mean, we experienced this yesterday as, as my son Gideon had a birthday party and he got all these presents from his friends. We had a great time. 20 boys running around the yard doing Nerf Wars, destroying the whole place. It was fantastic. I loved it. And then when he got his presents, like, cool, great. But when they left, how long do you think it was before there was a fight in our house over those presents? The night actually didn't end well because he was having such a hard time with his brother and sister touching his new presence, and it turned into a problem that we had to talk to him about. This kind of joy based on stuff and circumstances is sure to fade. But in biblical terms, it means being so happy, rejoicing over something that is good, that has arrived or is coming, and you are certain of it, but it goes beyond momentary happiness it takes a lifelong perspective where you realize I have joy because I know that God is going to be with me for the rest of my life. I know what awaits me in heaven. Now, people had joy before Jesus came. They, they did. But the arrival of Jesus coming was the culmination of so many precious promises in the scriptures that matter to us. And when we look at the Bible, we realize in Genesis chapter 3, sin ruined everything, pain and death and suffering entered a world that it wasn't supposed to be in. That wasn't God's good design, but, but sin was chosen over time with the Lord, over obeying the Lord. So immediately, a Messiah, a Savior was promised to people, to mankind, saying, God is going to fix this himself. And the birth of Jesus fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah, that, that he would break sin's hold that he would make us new again, and it would start a new phase of redemption. Now, sin continued to be a reality after the birth of Jesus and even his death and resurrection, but its hold has been broken. Now we can be forgiven and we can have a right relationship with God. Christmas is when we joyfully celebrate that the greatest promise of all has been fulfilled, that God is now with us that God's kingdom has come. What a reason to rejoice. Rejoicing should be directly connected to Christmas themes. Luke chapter one, verse 14 tells us this. Listen to this verse, this is great. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. This verse can describe us today, that Jesus is our joy, that he is our delight, that we rejoice because he was born because he cared so much about us that he came to this world. So the question is, is that your experience with Jesus? 
One where your relationship with God is that he is joy and delight. It's important for us to have joy in God. It strengthens us to have that kind of joy to get through a difficult life. We're told this in the book of Nehemiah where it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? We can't get through life just being discouraged beyond hope in despair, thinking it's all is lost. That's not the reality of the gospel for those that have a relationship with Jesus. And so if we don't find joy in Jesus, today we're gonna talk about three truths about biblical joy that we can focus on to stir up that joy that we want. And the first is that we have joy eternal. We have joy eternal. We have joy forever as we focus on our salvation. When we realize that we have been forgiven of our sins, we now are right with God and have a relationship with him now and forever, for all eternity, we can have joy thinking about that thought. It connects to Christmas because Jesus was born to save us from our sins. It's why he was named. It's why he's called Jesus. Listen to what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It says, she, his wife Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And then we have the definition of that name, because he will save his people from their sins. It's a very Christmas theme within Christianity, not culture, to think about, it's Christmas. I should repent of my sins. I need to make sure that I'm walking rightly before God because Jesus came to the manger, not for that once and for all relationship we can have with God, but to save us from sin. We hate sin. Sin ruins everything. And Jesus came to save us from that. It's why he's named Jesus. He wants to save us and we need to allow him to do that. The very fact that Jesus had to be born to save us from our sins means that we can't do it on our own, that nobody else here can help us overcome sin, that we need God's strength himself to forgive us and then to help us with our sin. It's humbling, not that God came as a human, that shows humility, but that we can't overcome our own flesh, our own weaknesses, apart from the strength that God desires to give us. Now, being born again, right? Having joy eternal, our salvation is such a big deal that even the angels celebrate it, right? Those that are closest to God have a clear view of what God is doing, how he's sending them about the world to do his will. They see humanity, they, they see everything unfold. Those that have the clearest perspective apart from God rejoice when someone gives their life to Jesus. Here's what it says in Luke 15, 10. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When you have that moment in life where you recognize I'm a sinner, my sin deserves to be judged, and I repent, I'm gonna turn away from my sin and follow after the Lord, not, not for perfection, not because we can do that on our own, but because we, we start to hate our sin. We don't, we don't like it anymore. We want to turn towards the Lord. When we repent and we do that and we enter into a relationship with God, the angels kind of freak out. They're just like, yeah, this is it. Because they're watching someone go from blindness to being able to see, from stumbling around in darkness 
to walking clearly in the light. There's a switch in our mind that goes off and we realize, wait, this world is trying to fool me, to confuse me, to think that, that life is all about temporary pleasure. It's all about money. It's all about fame. No, it's not about that. It's about God and his plan to rescue and redeem the lost. And so the angels celebrate. Now, we're not used to hearing that the angels celebrate because it's usually the Dodgers. Now, listen, you can't, be, you can't be upset at me because I'm not even an Angels fan. I'm not a Dodgers fan. I'm a fan of hot wings. Any sporting event where I can eat hot wings, that's why the World Cup was so difficult because the last time the USA played, it was 7 a.m. on a Saturday. And I'm like, I can't eat hot wings at 7 a.m. Should I even watch the game? But I got a burrito and covered it in hot sauce and pretended it was a hot wing. Listen, the Angels celebrate this because finally people are moving from the destruction of sin towards a life of joy with Jesus. So we should learn to kind of hate our sin. Jesus came to save us from it. There's no, okay, I'll make this decision. I'm in a right relationship with God. I get to go to heaven and I'll hold on to all of my sin, all my nasty sin that ruins relationships, causes people to cry, makes so much anxiety and stress. I'm gonna hold on to that, but I still get to go to heaven. That's just not part of the plan. He wants to save us, not just for eternity, but, but daily from the destruction that sin does in our lives. I think of King David after his greatest re recorded public sin when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He tried to get away with it for, I think, six months. He tried to keep it under wraps. And finally, through Nathan the prophet, the Lord calls him out on his sin and he is caught. And what does he do after he's caught? He repents. And he writes a whole psalm, a public psalm, that, that the nation could read along with about his repentance, about how sorry he was in this moment. And it says this in Psalm 51:12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Those six months where he thought he was getting away with adultery, he didn't even have any joy. He walked around miserable thinking, is someone gonna find out, does anyone know? knowing the consequences that had already happened because of that decision. He had no joy in his life. And when he finally got right with the Lord, he said, Lord, would you give me back the joy of my salvation, a right relationship with you? And he expressed it in a worship song by writing a psalm publicly. It didn't matter if anyone else saw it. They would. It was for the nation. And David, the great psalmist, knew how to express himself during worship, during times of praise. So if we meditate and think on our salvation, that we have joy eternal, it can reflect itself in our times of praise, in our times of worship, that we can express ourselves even physically during our times of worship. And so I've asked our worship pastor, Pastor Aaron Crane, to come out and talk to us about why is it important to express yourself during worship? Oh, did you change into a Dodgers jersey? It's going to look like we planned this. It's going to look like we planned this. You were, you were no, I just keep a Dodgers jersey on campus at all times. Um, oh, I had somebody in the hallway ask me if this was my ugly Christmas sweater, and I took offense to that. <clears throat> but uh, why, why does the physical expression of praise matter? Uh, physical expressions of praise matter because they are outward expressions of an inward reality. When we're up here leading praise and worship and we're, saying, we're encouraging the church to lift their hands and to sing, it's not to create a concert environment. 
It's to encourage you to express the inward reality that you have. And there's a lot of expressions of praise that are outlined in scripture. There's a lot of things that we do because we're accustomed to doing them out of habit, or maybe we do them out of tradition, but there's actually a scriptural basis for why we do these things. And in 1 Timothy 2.8, the apostle Paul says, I desire that people should pray lifting holy hands. And he's referring to the passages in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things where it outlines specific ways, bodily posture to have when praying, when worshiping, when praising the Lord. And Pastor Andy referred to King David, and he's, King David is kind of the model, the example that we look to as a songwriter in the scriptures. And he wrote hundreds of songs that told us how to praise the Lord by lifting our hands and all different types of physical expressions. I don't know what your background is. Maybe you are here on Sunday morning and when we're worshiping, maybe you see people that are a little bit more expressive in their worship and you think to yourself, they're just trying to get attention on themselves and they're trying to, and they're just being a distraction. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum and you say, um, maybe you're, you see people that are a little bit more somber in their worship and you think to yourself, they just must not love God as much as I do. I think it's important to understand what the Bible says about praise. The word praise comes from a Hebrew word and you've heard the word hallelujah. Say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay, so the word hallelujah, the first part of that is the word hallel, okay, which means praise, but the actual meaning of that word praise means this, to act clamorously foolish, to rejoice, to dance, to lift up your hands, and to use your physical being in praising the Lord. And when we look throughout scripture, we see a lot of examples of it. Just to real quick touch on some of these, lifting hands. Hands lifted, sir, they serve as a sign of surrender. We say that a lot. It serves as a sign of surrender, a sign of dependency, and a sign of sacrifice. There's bowing or kneeling before the Lord. Maybe you've seen someone do that in our worship time before, but that is to lower oneself in humility like one would do in the presence of of a king. Then there's singing and shouting, right? The Hebrew word renan means to shout for joy or cry out, to sing with a loud voice. This is a joyful call to worship. It's where we get the word acclaim. The word acclaim means to welcome into one's presence with a shout, just like one would do when their favorite sports team is getting on the field. Thursday night, I went to SoFi <laughs> Stadium and Thursday night, uh, I went to SoFi Stadium, and I am a Raider fan, and uh, so it was the Raiders-Rams, yeah, a couple of, you, a couple of you guys out there, it was Raiders-Rams, and for the first, actually the entire day was great, until the last 60 seconds of that game. But what happened was when the Raiders came out onto the field, we acclaimed them. We welcomed them as Raider fans. We welcomed them onto the field with a shout. Truth be told, it was way louder for Raiders, uh, Raiders fans than it was for Rams fans. The Rams tried to do their who's house and then everybody go Raiders. So 
That was actually pretty fun. But um, when, the, when the Dodgers make a great play, we shout. I shout, at least. When the Lakers win a game, which that's, they're not winning very many this year, I get excited. I shout. But the point is, we shout to welcome someone into our presence and when we're excited. Another form is dancing, to spin around, to jump for joy, clapping. The Bible says in Psalm 47, come everyone, clap your hands, shout to God with joyful praise. God actually enjoys when you, are, when you and I are expressive in our praise to him. Maybe you're thinking, Aaron, why does any of this matter? I love God, he sees my heart, so I don't have to do any of this. I can just stand there like this. God sees my heart, so he knows I love him and it doesn't matter. True, the first utmost importance is the posture of our hearts. But I've said this before during our times of worship, never is praise something that is found in our heart and meant to stay there. First Peter 2.9 says we, us as followers of Christ, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and here's the part I want you to see, who should show forth the praises of him. Not keep quiet the praises of him. Show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you and I, as believers, we are called to show forth his praises. What is in our heart? The joy, like Pastor Andy is talking about today, the joy of the salvation that we have been given should come out in our physical expression. And like he mentioned, David was undignified in his worship. When he was rebuked by his wife, he said, sorry, babe, I'm gonna be a little bit crazier than this because he was passionate about the Lord. We don't do this for the sake of drawing attention to ourselves. Worship is our response to God's love for us. The greater that you and I have received God's love, the greater that we will respond, amen? Uh, my favorite part about that story of Aaron going to the Raiders game, though, was that he found out at like 4 p.m. that the <laughs> he found out at 4 p.m. he was going. Someone got him tickets, but they were connected with the Rams PR department, so he was not allowed to wear any Raiders gear at all at that game, which is why they lost. I loved it. That brought me joy. It did. Lots of joy. So we have we have joy eternal. But we also have joy in trials, joy in trials. Even when things are difficult, we can have joy. We're told why in James chapter one, verses two through three, we're told to count it all joy when you fall into various trials because the testing of your faith produces patience and we should let patience have its perfect work, right? God is working on our character when we go through difficult times. And so we don't have joy and say, oh, great, I have this horrible sickness. I have joy in this sickness, in this pain. No, we have joy during our trials because God is at work in our character. It's one of the greatest ways for God to work on who we are is through our difficulties. So it changes us, and it's also a witness to other people as they watch us suffer, but we still have hope during those difficult times. So we can have joy even when people reject us, the Bible uses the word persecution to talk about that. When we live for God, 
and yet we are rejected. Luke chapter 6, verse 23, talking about persecution, says, blessed are those who hate you. Blessed are you if people hate you. And then this, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Jesus is saying, you can find joy when people reject you when you are living godly or proclaiming the gospel because it is proof that you are a follower of God, that you are a child of God. They treated the prophets that you read about the same exact way they rejected the prophets. They're going to reject you when you speak forth the truth of Jesus. We should do that tactfully in love, but we can never do that and assume it will always be well-received, but that doesn't mean we don't speak up about the gospel. So no matter how people treat us, no matter the potential consequences, We want to think through the promises of God and how we should live them out and ask God for the strength to live for him, no matter how people treat us. Jesus told us this in John chapter 16. He says, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. We can have joy as we say, I want to live for God. I love my neighbor. I love my family. I love my friends that don't know Jesus. I know they're missing out. I know they're not forgiven of their sins yet. I need to tell them who God is. And there may be some awkwardness there and they may treat you differently after that, but you love them. You're gonna find the most loving way to have those conversations at the right time. Mostly we listen. And then at the right time, as we're praying for people, the Lord will give us an open door, an opportunity where we can speak the truth towards those that are around us. And so we have joy in trials, even when things aren't going well. And this will reflect itself in peace that we have in our lives, the joy that we show, but also in our words, in what we say to other people. As they ask us how we're doing as we're going through such a difficulty, we tell them about the peace of God, the joy of God that we can have because we know he's there with us in these difficult things. And so our words reflect this. And so we, in, we invite people to church. More importantly, we invite them to our homes and, and to hear our story about how Jesus has changed our lives and we speak that truth to others. We do approach people that look a bit distressed. When you see, walk by and you see somebody crying on a bench, as believers, we can say, you know what? That's not okay that somebody who God loves is sitting there all alone crying. We can go up and say, is it okay if I sit and talk with you? Can I pray with you? Is anything going on that you need help with? And we automatically go to all the dangerous things that could happen if we speak to another human in public, but those largely don't happen. And there's a time and a place to walk away. But, but the times when you walk to someone who is distressed and struggling and you overflow with your words of the truth and, and love for them, even if they don't want to hear it, because you know that you have joy in trials and you want to share that with others, that can be a powerful moment for them. But we also have joy today, not just joy eternal forever because of our salvation, not just joy in our difficult seasons and trials. We can have joy today, more joy if we choose to go after it in his presence. We can go to God when we're in difficult times. The psalmist said this in Psalm 94, when anxiety was great within me, so describing a horrible situation, saying, oh, this was the worst day and I needed help. He says, your consolation brought me joy. The psalmist going to God for comfort, to be consoled. 
instead of going to distraction and the things of this world, found comfort and joy, we go to God. We're always faced with those challenges. Something bad happens, we're frustrated, we're mad, or we're depressed. And we have an opportunity to say, where will I go for my healing, for my comfort? When we go to God, there is joy. And so we need to start trying to find more ways to find our joy in the presence of God. Do the things that remind us that God is with us, especially during this season where we focus on it. Psalm 1611 gives us a beautiful promise that we are told to test out. The psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life, the right way to live. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. We have to decide if we only find joy in theme parks, in movies, in vacations, or if we are going to try and trust the Lord and find joy in his presence, that anywhere at any time we can go to that refuge, that fortress that is God and find joy with him. So we do the things that bring us to God. We listen to worship music. Right, we talk to him in prayer. I woke up this morning, like shot out of bed, and I said out loud, I hate my sermon. And I was up, I was up an hour and a half earlier than normal, and I got ready and I got to a coffee shop and spent an hour and a half there rewriting the sermon. If you look at my my notes, there are all kinds of blacked out things that I just got rid of this morning. I was like, I hate it. And I had shared my sermon with my wife last night and she did not seem too impressed either. And so I, I woke up and I was like, oh, this is, this is bad. And so I, I, but I recognized hey, the, the Lord gave me that thought. I need to go to him in prayer all morning. I'm like, Lord, help, Lord, Lord, something's not right. Lord, help me in this. We can go to the Lord and find joy in his presence. And it's an internal work. And so we have to ask the Holy, the Holy, the Holy Spirit to do that work in our hearts. Say, Lord, you got to do it. I don't feel joy. Look at all this stuff going on around me. And then he, he gives us the fruit of the Spirit as we spend time abiding in the vine, hanging with Jesus, then all of a sudden he changes us from the inside out. We're told in Galatians chapter five that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, and a great list of other things. It's a work done on the interior. Exterior works can be fake. We can act a certain way, but when we know that we've changed on the inside, we know the Lord is doing a work. And if we believe this, that we can have joy today in God, in his presence, it will affect our wants, the things that we desire, right? We'll realize I, I, I find temporary joy in other things, but I can find lasting joy in the Lord. This, is, this affects our lives. It happened to King David. David, after his story of, of dancing in, was so happy, he didn't just end with a dance. He went in and declared to the bakers of the kingdom, give everybody who's here celebrating with us a, a raisin cake and a, a, some other cake. They gave out these two cakes to the people. It overflowed where they said, hey, I don't care how much it costs, I'm gonna pour out and bless everybody that is doing the right thing, rejoicing that God is near. We see a change in Zacchaeus in the Gospels, this tax collector who was opposing his own people by collecting the Roman tax and taking advantage of the Jewish people. The Bible describes him in Luke chapter 19, verse two, he was the chief tax collector and he was wealthy because he was scamming everyone, right? And then, then he sees Jesus. He was a short little guy. He climbed a tree, saw Jesus. Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna come eat in your home today. And he came down and it says that he received Jesus joyfully, joyfully, 
And something happened in those conversations where Zacchaeus was changed from the inside out and recognized he's doing everything wrong. It's not about money and I shouldn't scam people. I need to follow Jesus, this Savior, this Messiah. And look at how he was changed. In verse eight, it says, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What would cause someone to change like this? He probably could have got away with saying, all right, from now on, I'll be fair. But he's like, no, God is amazing. I'm going to give half of my money to the poor and I'm going to find the people that I defrauded and I'm going to pay them back four times so that they know that I'm right with God. So that this isn't a stain on Jesus. As I start to follow Jesus, they know, yeah, he changed. He gave me four times back what he stole from me. Everything changed for him. Why would it be worth it to leave so much good stuff, so much worldliness? Why would he leave it? Because worldly fun has nothing on the presence of God. Being right with God is one of the most amazing feelings that you can ever have. We continue to stumble, to make mistakes, to even hurt other people. But now we're quick to ask for forgiveness, to get right with God, to resume our relationship with Him. We sang the song earlier, Joy to the World. And I want to put those lyrics up on the screen as we close the service. This is a song written in the 1700s. Beautiful song. It says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And so we're kind of given our instructions there based on the birth of Jesus, that we should receive our king and prepare him room in our lives. Get rid of these consumeristic distractions and say, no, I'm going to carve out this time to, to seek the Lord. There will be room in my heart, in my house, in my mind for Jesus. I will meditate on him. I will be in his presence and I will experience the fullness of joy. But I have to receive him as king. I need to declare that he's in charge, not me, not someone else. I need to prepare that room. And when I do that, everything becomes right. Or as the, the songwriter here puts it, heaven and nature sing. Earth and heaven are kind of finally on the same page when we recognize Jesus is God and he is king. And when we do that personally, everything becomes right. And if that's not a decision that you've made to make Jesus your king, I encourage you today to come down and talk to someone on our prayer team. They would love to tell you the good news of Jesus, that, that we are sinners, that he is God, that he is king, and answer any questions you have about following him. And so as we close and we have people up here that would love to pray with you, if you haven't made that decision, come and talk to us. We'll answer, we'll stay as long as it takes to answer as many questions as you have about following Jesus. But have you noticed the theme of these reasons for joy? We talked about, you know, God eternal, God in joy eternal, joy in trials and joy today. The theme is God is with us. Isaiah 7, 14, describing a name that the Messiah was going to have is, his name's going to be Emmanuel, as far as his character, God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus came to earth to be with us so we could forever have a relationship with him. And that's what makes each of these situations right. We have eternal joy because Jesus came to this earth to be with us. We can have joy during trials, not because the trial is going away, but because Jesus promises to be with us in the trial. 
And we can have joy today as we invite Jesus to be with us and we focus on his presence that is here right now. Joy is attainable. It's right there for us to grab. And that doesn't minimize any of the pain that we're going through, but it gives us hope that joy is still possible. So Father, would you please give us that joy? If we are basing our our happiness on circumstances, on relationships, on things like that, Lord, it's so temporary. Other people control whether or not we're going to be happy based on how they treat us. Lord, this world is difficult. It's hard. It's one of the reasons why we, we come out during inclement weather and we are at church. Why? Because we need to remind ourselves of the goodness of God of the good news of Jesus, that you are with us, that you loved us so much, you came down here into our mess to save us from ours. And so, Lord, we have great joy in our hearts and we want it to overflow and we want it to to bring a smile to our face. We want to sing louder than we, we ever have, Lord, when we have those chances because we have all the reasons in the world to have joy this holiday season and in a difficult season. And so we just give ourselves to you asking us Lord, asking you to to do a great work in our hearts and that joy would overflow into our relationships with others. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a prayer team available here that would love to talk with you. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.